Blog Talk Radio. I don't think it's any more difficult to write comedy about dark and difficult subjects than it is to write comedy about light and fluffy subjects. Possibly easier, because everybody has a real feeling about it, and although you can get condemned for it if you step on the wrong toes, you know that you're doing something that has maybe a little more protein than than the other stuff. I mean, you know, it's the tradition of comedy since, I'm going to get professorial here, since the Greeks is to write about the most terrifying aspects of human life and behavior. Um, and Aristophanes made his plays out of mostly relationships between the gods and making fun of them and the absurdities of of the things that the, his society held most dear. And that continues through, you know, continues through into Shakespeare and Moliere and every all the other great comic writers. Uh, the, you know, and, 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 and Kafka and all the other, we call him a, a comedy writer in the in the intellectual trade. Um, so, you know, the I, I say this not out of any particular self-interest, but the great book about the end of World War II, the great comic book is Catch-22, and it assaults all the things we hold dearest about the responsibility of men for killing each other and capitalism and all that stuff. And at its best, political comedy, comedy about the misbehavior of the people who govern us and our misbehavior to others is is still the most powerful stuff written. And hello Amen. everybody and welcome to the first these video store of the new millennium and yeah, I definitely agree with that, don't you, Carl? What he said? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh you know, you know, he goes back to the Greek writers and of course we're that was Buck Henry who passed away this this week. Um but the thing about it is that comedy really good comedy that lasts is about difficult subjects and done so with an eye toward the uh uh the the satirical and the the sense that it just doesn't make sense that there's something wrong here and and he hits that on the head in that little uh snippet of an interview well, can you think of any other comic writer that grew with us that kept, that started in the 50s? Was it oh, the 60s, well, 70s, several. 80s? I mean, even in the 90s, he was writing stuff. He was always, oh. he never lost his touch in like some of them who, uh, well, let's go there, uh, Mel Brooks. Well, you know, there's a difference between Mel Brooks and Buck Henry. And and let's not forget that they teamed together. Not as directing. 
Right, right. But I'm talking about writing. Remember that they worked together and created I Spy, which yeah. is a silly show, which is sort of like Brooks's input into it. But it's also a really, really pointed satire, which is what Buck Henry did. Now, if you go later into Buck Henry's career and look at Quark, oh, good God. You know, that yeah, was we'll way that, too yeah. much for television in the 80s. If you look at I Spy on its surface, it's just a, a funny anti you know, funny game farm party. But look, it's one of the nastiest, meanest, anti-sexism, anti-old boy network. Oh, yeah, and that's that's Henry. That's Buck Henry all the way. You know, that's Buck Henry all the way. Uh, you know, not that Mel Brooks didn't have that in him, too. Take a look at uh, Blazing Saddles, which is a fucking masterpiece. But but yeah. Henry was was more pointed and, and 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 more sharp, so that it was a knife that cut. Even in in in, in Blazing Saddles, even today with people the way that they look at things, you know, it's still rather gentle in a lot of ways because you like the characters, even the ones that are stupid, you like them. That's not true yeah. of, of 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 Get Smart, for example. It's not. Not all the way, anyway. No. Well, let's look at his first really big, big movie hit. Even even though it's dated a lot, a lot of its meanness is still there, and that's the graduate. Oh. It's it it, it it's a film that I appreciate. A lot. And, 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 you know, I talk a lot about the new Hollywood. We talk about Bonnie and Clyde as the beginning of that. But you could also argue very easily that The Graduate was also the beginning of, of new Hollywood uh, because yeah. it was pointed. It was satiric. Now, one of the things he did, and I read this in an article, is <coughs> – <Yeah. coughs> Several people had tried to adapt the original novel, which was written in 63. But what he did was he made the Dustin Hoffman character less of an asshole than what was in the book. And he made him more uh, – and, and then he, he pointedly made the other characters more venal, like, like Mrs. Robinson and such. And that yeah. worked extremely well. That worked extremely well. What I well. like about it is most of the movies that were like The Graduate around that time had the guy like Dustin Hoffman come out, and then by the end of the movie, he's a radical who has great ideas. Right. Not The Graduate. In the Graduate, he, in the graduate he's as dumb and clueless at the All the end way through. of the film. Right, yeah. and that was Buck Henry who did that. Okay? Yeah. You know, now I want, I want to go back a little bit, if I can, Stephen, because, you know, Buck Henry started out with Gary Moore and, and a lot of these shows in the 50s and early 60s, but he also 
did 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 uh, uh, improv uh, uh, and things like that. And then he did this thing where he was writing for Gary Moore, and he was the he was the writer behind this this whole thing called the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, where he played a character by the name of G. Clifford Prout Jr. And he inundated all the the major newspapers with this idea that that uh, uh, he picketed the White House in an attempt to dress up animals decently, and and he he did it to amuse himself, but but he also wanted to to make a point about how stupid we can be when we look at a. a, a, a uh, you know, an item like that and, and become all behind it. Now, if you take a look at that and sort of like take that whole thing and, and bring it to the political uh, uh, situation right now, it still has import. I mean, he really, really came up with stuff where he was making a point. saying about get smart this is a, a an interview that was uh given to him in like the late 60s and he said he said i think i'll say something shocking okay shocking but true it's simply this you cannot do good contemporary comedy and still secure the 45 through 65 year old age group audience um uh, if you must make the older group understand the jokes henry went on it imposes certain rules that an absolutely will dilute your grade of humor. They aren't dumb, these people. They, however, are in a different bag. They're not tuned into contemporary comedy. These people have reached a certain age and often a certain economic plateau, are established, well-fed, contented, and above all nice people, except where comedy is concerned. To begin with, they understand solid, dirty jokes are very bland, clean ones. They've been nurtured on and delight in Lucille Ball, Red Skelton, Burl, and the others, all of whom can be very funny. But the one thing they also do is they assiduously avoid making any comment on the real life around us. In that sense, they are totally unhip. And that's what he brought to comedy. I I can't say better than that. Go ahead, Stephen. Sometimes you do want that mean pointed Bill Hicks comedy. Oh hell yeah. And sometimes you also want that Emo Phillips escape from reality comedy. Oh that too. You want both. Reality gets too much for you. You need both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 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 let's let's get back to this article because I think this is really good into delving into how how uh, Buck Henry worked. He said 
Take situation comedies. Situation comedy has degenerated into an endless stream of lovable characters we can identify with. Pretty creepy. Get Smart is a so-called sitcom, but I think it's funnier than other sitcoms because we either do jokes or we do story. There are no villains, no caramel corn. Often we're wrong, but at least our jokes are real jokes. It's real comedy. Peyton Place has no real drama. It's manufactured nonsense with unreal people. He says, once last season, I wrote a whole Get Smart show just to get one pun in, which is pretty crazy. Am I right? I'll set the scene. Smart's on the ship, whose captain is named Grauman. It so happened that Grauman has an oriental servant who follows him around. Maxwell Smart spots the captain and the servant together for the first time. He says, so that's Grauman's Chinese? Imagine writing a whole episode just for one pun. That's what he did. That's why he was able to survive from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And it's not only as a writer. Don't forget, the man was a damn good actor, too. Yeah. Well, he was uh, in Get Smart. He was in... uh, the graduate. Oh yeah, yeah, he was. And he I'm, was, I'm getting up as IMDb now. I'm, I... Yeah, and he wasn't in so. what he calls a shit adaptation of a pretty funny book. He wasn't in there, and he was pretty much glad of that. Which one was that you're you're referencing? Uh, candy. Mm-mm. No, he wasn't in that one. He did write, he did co-write it, but he he basically dismissed it, to say the least. Well, it was at the time where uh, a lot of the actors in it were so big that they were able to tell people what to do. Like the worst actor in it, Marlon Brando, who, in the space of five minutes, made you hate the movie. More than you hated it before. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even Walter Matthau looked like he didn't want to be there, but then a lot of his late 60s, 70s stuff, until he hooked up with Neil Simon, mm-hmm. he hated. <laughs> yep. He, he actually was in Candy, uh, uh, I hate to say it, uh, uh, Blinker, your miss cameo. He was a mental patient. <laughs> um, I mean, that really know, should have been so a dream thing. Terry Southern and Buck Henry? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was in Catch-22. Of course, he wrote he wrote the the, the uh, screenplay for that, and he's What's just he's brilliant. Twenty two, yeah. What's funny is when Catch Twenty mm-hmm. Two come out, it was considered a failure of an adaption of the book. But as the years it is slightly problematic, but it's but that's not his fault. That's a fucking bear of a novel to adapt. Yeah, let me finish. But as the years have gone by, God damn, has it aged good. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I agree. It's because it's better now than it was then. Mm-hmm. Again, I agree. Especially with that, especially with that crappy adaptation that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Which I still have not seen. It's like he said, you can't be afraid to go dark. And with something like Catch-22, no. you have to go dark. Because, like he said, it was the condemnation. Good old boy. We all did it before and we can do it again. Bullshit that came out after World War Two. Right. Well, of course, let's not forget that we have to get a nod to to the person that originally wrote it as a novel, and that would be Joseph Heller. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. He actually, that's actually, that actually is a true story, the whole idea of it, that thing where if you don't want to fly because if you're crazy because you don't want to fly, then you're crazy. Mm-hmm. But if you're crazy and don't want to fly because you're afraid of dying, that means you're sane and you have to fly. Yeah, that's Catch-22. Who? That's Catch-22. I don't know if that's true or that just makes, that just makes my head hurt just trying to logic that out. Well, well that, that's the whole point. It's 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 the sense of of, of illogic in the logic that that is the point of the novel and of course the point of the movie and the screenplay that Buck Buck Henry wrote. Wonderful, um, you know. He, I, I, I just love him. Um, I mean, take a look at, at um, you know. Where we saw him as an actor, okay, and 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 of course for me, you know, you start at you you start at uh, uh, Catch Twenty Two, uh, but then he he had a uh, uh, a big role in a film called Taking Off, uh, directed by Milos Forman, and and he he you would see him in all sorts of small roles. But man, when he got a role that he could uh, uh, chew on and 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 make a meal out of, oh my yeah. God, did he do some great work as an actor? Yeah. Too. What's funny is in between taking off and Catch Twenty Two, he wrote one of the sweetest, gentlest comedies about a neurotic guy and a prostitute ever written. That's the Owl and the Pussycat. Absolutely. And of course, that he that he didn't write the original. That was a play, uh, but he wrote the yeah, screenplay. Yeah, a play, play adaptation. Yeah. And the way that he expanded it actually makes sense, rather than you can tell. You know, most of them's like, oh, I can tell when a play ends, and then they add it on. Not with the L and the Pussycat. No, no. And then there was no. is there sex after death, which I haven't seen. Have you seen that one, Carl? Oh yeah, oh yeah! I saw that at the drive-in. We we ran it. It's silly. It's it's basically uh, uh, um, skits, you know, little skits here and there, yeah. just like you know the Groove Tube or what you know one of those. Yeah. It, it there are oh. some good ones in there. 
And the good ones, I'm sure, were written by Buck Henry. I'm positive of that. Yeah. If you remember, there was a line in Scanners making fun of sci-fi films called, oh, this is a serious project. There's nothing to do with monsters or dolphins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could that be a fuck you to? To the day of the dolphin. Yeah. Which... Well, you know what? Let, well, let's face is, it. Uh, if you don't know who John C. Lilly is, whose ideas are behind the day of the dolphin, the man's a nutcase. Well, no nutcase, but he's yeah, still a nutcase. You know what scary is, Carl? What? That was a real project from World War II. They I know. I know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is that it was a real project. So they could send them against like, Nazi ships to blow them up and the dolphins. Right, right. And who was behind that whole thing? John C. Lilly. Real person. That's the person behind that whole program. It's a scary idea. It made a goofy fucking movie out of it. It was just not that. But it was like, oh, my God. But we're saying that because he really, really redeemed himself with his next acting role. And oh, God. Carl read an article earlier this week. I just want to say, fuck you to the writer of it. Don't mention their names. They ain't getting no fucking credit, but... Fuck you, you're an idiot. Yeah, I, I I remember I called you on that, and I said, what the fuck is he yeah. thinking? So why don't you tell him what this, this person said? Do you remember? No, you I? told me, so you, get the, so you get the credit to say what well, this basically this, this, said. This person was was doing a, a retrospective of Buck Henry and said that the problem with the man who fell to the earth is that there was only one person who could act in the whole movie. And that was Buck Henry. And well, he said the only person who could act in the whole movie was Buck Henry. And I'm sorry. He's fucking wrong. Because David Bowie is wonderful in that film. Okay. Candy Clark. And let's not forget Rip Torn, who was probably the the best or the second best role he ever had, Rip Torn. Yeah. Second best. Uh, Just an incredible, incredible cast. And I read that, and I said, what the fuck? You know, now, I will say this. Buck Henry starts out, and he plays Oliver Farnsworth, as this person who wants to take advantage of David Bowie. But during the film and that, and as he sees what happens to, to Bowie and, 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 and that becomes very, very uh, uh, reticent about his role in it and, and, and actually tries to help Bowie at the end. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful role. And you can see just you know, the change in the character as the film goes along. Uh, and Have Buck you Henry ever is just heard, uh, marvelous. Go ahead, Commentary Steve. on The Man Who Fell to Earth. Okay. Buck Henry has like a five-minute 
part of the commentary where he explains the one line that he says when he, during his final fate in the movie. Okay. So go ahead. Tell us about that. Well, no, you have to watch it because I'd have to explain what happened. There's no spoilers, but that's how prepared he was. He had like a whole oh, yeah. five-minute bit story on just one line that he improvised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just wonderful, wonderful stuff, and and and, and a really fine actor. Uh, and we forget that about him, but he was a really good actor. Um. All right. That's we got a TV series it's to go short... go to. Stephen, wait. Go ahead. That's a minor waiter. It's a short. He's in it, and it's on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the best, uh, most hilarious physical comedy shorts of the seventies. Right, and that's with uh, Steve. Um, um, come on, Steve. Damn it. Martin. Martin, Steve Martin, yeah, yeah. What's funny is Absent Minor Raider, Waiter. Now I think I know what TV show you're talking about. That was the reason that Buck Henry and Steve Martin got shots on this late night TV show experiment, right? Right. That's very true. Very true. But we have to backtrack here a little bit because we need okay. to talk about a TV show that, that Buck Henry developed. Uh, did not run long, but over the years has it gotten a cult. And I mean a major, major cult. That's uh, And we're talking about a That's series called after, Quark. You know, we're going yeah, in go ahead. sort of order. So, yeah, we'll talk about that when it gets to the 80s, but... Yeah. Well, well, no, that we're right there. No, 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 we're right there. Okay. It's before Absent-Minded Waiter. We're right there. Quark was, I wouldn't even call it a two-season series. I call it a one-season series. No, it is. It was only one season. How short the season. I think but it's it 13 episodes. Two different years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what it was, they showed the first, uh, what? I forget. The first season was seven or eight episodes, and it basically bombed because they play ping pong with it. How are you supposed to watch a TV show, Carl, when you don't know when the fuck it's going to be fucking showing? Yeah, true. (laughs) But you know what? There's a reason. There's a reason they did that, because they had a hot potato. They didn't know what to do with this thing. Let's not forget that Quark has the first transsexual character on TV ever, played by Tim Tamerson. He's a plant, though. Okay, not only that, they had twin uh, um, uh, twins on there. Like, every other joke was, you know, sexual it was really really double entendre raunchy all over the place plus it was weird yeah, but as the hell. funniest joke was uh one that tim tamerson ad-libbed okay so tell him which was shut the hell up double mint twins 
<laughs> yep. You know, and Richard Benjamin, just wonderful, wonderful, uh, uh, really strange, not ex- not extremely successful because it is it, it, it is a little clunky here and there. But damn, the ideas and that, and, and and just to have Tim Tamerson playing the transsexual character, and this is back in the late seventies, you know, that was unheard of. However, he sold this and was able to get it on air. I'll never friggin' know. Seriously, I don't know don't how that got on air. Then, most of the people who is targeting Star Trek fans held the series in such a holy in reverent mode that you can't make fun of Star Trek. You're being mean. <laughs> well, guess what? He was. And you uh, know what? Yeah. I'm going to tell you something. If you don't think Seth MacFarlane's show that he has on now yeah. doesn't owe a nod to Quark, you're out of your mind. Oh, he has said so in interviews. He said yeah. that if he was still alive, he'd have Richard Benjamin do a cameo on the show. Yeah. Seriously. And in fact, he did have Tamerson on the show. He had yeah, Tamerson on the show. Don't forget. Yeah. Uh, what was Quark's job, which was part of the joke? Hey, it was a garbage scout. Yeah, they was a gar. They were garbage men. <laughs> Yeah, and what's even funnier is that they were uh, confused on how to do alien in a way, but then uh, Ridley Scott watched seen an episode of Quark, and he and it just popped in his head. Oh my God! Yeah. Let's make them working stiff. Yeah. Because really, exactly. that was unheard of in sci-fi, making the their astronauts, their famous people. This Not completely. Not seen. completely, Dark Star. Well, yeah. But still, they were destroying planets to make a better view. They weren't exactly just blue Yeah, cops. but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing seventies about the sci-fi. The blue-collar guy as um, type as astronaut. Mm-hmm. Then we got his first film as a, as a director, right? Yeah, he co-directed with Warren Beatty, and it's a very good film. I love this film. Yeah, Heaven Can Wait. It's a remake of Heaven Knows, Mister. No, no, no. It's not Heaven Knows, Mr. Allison. It's, um, I can't remember offhand. I can probably find out while we, while we work. Hold on just a second. I can yeah. tell you this. Uh, well, not hold on, but yeah. Joe Pendleton. Here comes Mr. Jordan. Ah. I I I know it's uh, I know it's something I can't remember. Here come Mr. Jordan. That's it. Here come Mr. Jordan. That's it's a remake of that one. 
Yeah, and the play was called Heaven Can Wait. And then it was remade for a third time with uh, what's his Chris Rock as Down to Earth. Right. Yeah. And he also plays like the escort from heaven, the crazy little uh, business worker in heaven. Yes. Is it time to get on that experimental show that no one thought would make it? Uh, well, are you talking the new show? We got a little more than that, no, okay? That NBC show that was an experiment. Oh, oh, that oh really the NBC show that no one thought. Yes, we should talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that they and that they basically stole the best comedians from the National Lampoon and the Second City. Yep. And that will be Saturday Night Live. During the Michael McDonough years, Buck Henry was a staple on the show. In the first five years, he guest hosted for ten times. So that's two times a year. Yeah. He guest host. So he basically became an adjunct cast member whenever he came on. And he was in one of the moments that is talked about a lot by the real fans of Saturday Night Live, but for some reason, they're not mentioned in any of the official anniversaries or any of the clips from these two skits are not. And hell, I ain't going to say shit. Here's the best in himself to talk about it. Okay. Cool. Uncle Roy was the uh, babysitter, uncle of uh, the kids, Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner, who were like eight, nine, ten, eleven, and he's the uncle you hope doesn't show up at your house because his relationship to the children is mm, on the edge. Uh, but the great thing about the sketches. We did it twice only. See, people think we did it a lot of times, but we didn't. We did it twice. The, ba- the best thing about the sketch to me was that they really liked, they really loved each other, I think, and they thought too. So when I asked them to, you know, throw down their little panties and uh, let me take pictures of them standing on top of the coffee table, all this stuff, this nasty stuff, they, the, you know, the giggling and the and the show of affection would just increase. I I know those of you who are listening to this and have been badly mangled by your early history will not sympathize with my point of view, but still, I also had another rationalization for it. Um, this the, both both times the sketches were written by Ann Beats and Rosie Schuster, mm-hmm. so men did not have. Any input. I had little input, but the guys did not have input in the writing of them. And at the end of the second one, Danny Aykroyd and Jane, the parents of the little girls, come in and say what kind of, you know, was it a good evening? And, you know, we'd have a joke of some kind. And in the second one, they said, 
something like, oh, you're so good to give up your evenings. There's nobody like you, Uncle Roy. And I looked in the camera and said, oh, I don't think that's true. I, I think there's an Uncle Roy in every family. And I thought, this is a great moment in which possibly I can start interesting conversations in families across America about who was the Uncle Roy in their family. I probably was building it all up too much, but I liked the concept. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, comedy that that grabs you and makes you uncomfortable. And yet still he has a, a, a reason for that. Okay? That's what makes great comedy, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That was basically Michael McDonough and his most McDonough-ness. <laughs> yeah, and, and we talk about Michael McDonough a lot in terms of, of that show. And I, I think we should just make, make it clear that there was, you know, two polls. There was Lauren Michaels and there was Michael McDonough. And even though they worked together, you knew at one point they weren't going to work together. And Michael was much more interested in pushing envelopes and making people uncomfortable. Uh, Lauren Michaels was looking at something else, you know, movies coming from the skits and such. And so it makes exact sense that during the McDonough years that someone like Buck Henry would become part of that group because he embodied what Michael O'Donoghue wanted the show to go towards. No question. And since we started all that, that really dark for a second. We'll be back in a segment, but first, a commercial. Need help? Yeah, no power. It just goes... <coughs> Air filter. Air filter? I'll show you. Feel weak when you can't breathe, huh? Yeah. Your car gets weak, too, and it can't breathe. And a dirty air filter like this keeps your car from breathing. But what do I do? Get a new Purolator air filter. It'll let your car breathe easy again. Its 32-foot supermicronic element stops dangerous dirt particles and any other filters let through. Really? You get more power and up to three more miles per gallon. Three more miles per gallon? A Purolator gasoline filter can make a big difference, too. Show me how that works. Your service station man will show you. Oh. But he says get a... <laughs> yes, Carl, okay. that was an old TV commercial, pure layer air filters that Buck Henry did back in the 50s. <laughs> nice. Nice. Nice, nice pool. I never heard that before. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that was... but. Once uh, John Belushi left, that was uh, Madonna's power That was basically the end of uh, Buck Henry on that show. Because they had had really bonded through the samurai character. 
and and whenever Henry was on, he was the uh, uh, he was the foil to John Belushi, and they and they were very very close. Yeah, the Ukrainian restaurant workers, which some people call yeah. racist today, but I say fuck you. They were people who come from the Ukraine and opened a goddamn fast food restaurant, and were trying to do the best they can. Yep, I agree. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. No Pepsi, no Pepsi. Go, go, go. <laughs> yep. Henry was always there. By the way, Stephen, uh, you might want to get closer to your mic. You're you're sounding a little bit in a tunnel. Oh, sorry, okay? there was a hand. There was a hand in the way. Sorry. Okay, that's better. Uh, Thank yeah. you. And next we have a movie that he acted in as a favorite of John Belushi old boyfriend, which we need to do a goddamn commentary on as much as we dissected this motherfucker before. I I, I like this movie a lot. I really do. Uh, uh, written by Joan Tewksbury, who was also uh, for a short period of time on the writing staff of SNL. It is a very, very female-centric uh, 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 movie about uh, uh, a woman who who wonders why she is where she is in her life and goes to her old boyfriends, and 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 um, uh, Buck Henry plays one of them, and it's it is a really good little film. I really enjoy it. Not well known, unfortunately. Well, because remember how we talked about how schizophrenic they sold it, but oh, I didn't know yeah. he was on uh, the the spinoff to uh, All in the Family. Uh, I don't know what you're referencing to. Well, it says he are, was are in Gloria in 1980 on Wikipedia. Isn't that the Gloria they're talking about? No. Oh, I see where you're going with it now. Now, now. Uh, we're Joe talking John Cassavetes. We're talking John Cassavetes and Gina Rollins. And and Buck Henry plays the person who gets killed at the beginning that the little boy sees the assassination. And, uh, yeah, I mean, here Buck Henry is working with with John Cassavetes. And of course, come on, we're talking about Gloria. We've got to talk about your favorite quote in the whole movie. So you have to give him that, Stephen. Yeah. You got beat by a woman? What kind of pussy are you? Where are your balls, Joe? Where's your fucking balls? <laughs> God bless. God bless her. Seriously. Um, just Gina Rollins is just fucking awesome in that movie. Seriously. Yeah. In Seriously. all seriousness, what the hell went wrong with First Family? Uh, well, I tell you what, whatever went, went wrong with First Family, it, it's the second movie that that uh, Buck Henry directed, and he also wrote it. And he says he takes complete uh, blame for that movie. 
seriously. Yeah, yep. I mean, it should have been not. good. I mean, you had uh, Bob Newhart, good. Uh, this was what Gilda Radner's first real starring vehicle, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Father yep. Guido Sarducci is the Pope. Yep. Don Novello. I mean, yeah, Don Novello. I'm sorry, but he's always going to be that. Well, of course he, he is. He said in interviews that people have called him that, and he's like, okay, that's my name now, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But then he makes up for it in 1982 with one of the greatest dark comedies ever made. <laughs> to say the least. It's a couple, isn't it? And it's about uh, a bland uh, couple, just, just... isn't it? Yep. I, I would agree with that. And of course what are we talking what movie are we talking Raul. about? Eating Raul. Yes. Yep. Now I Fuck just you posted about this not it. too long ago. Um but this was written by Richard Blackburn, uh, who also did Lamora back back in the day and a number of years previous. But but of course you're talking Paul Bartell. And Mary Warnoff, and he he plays one of the swingers that they kill, and it's just wonderful. And this pairing, you know, here he goes from from working with Cassavetes to working with Paul Bartel, which is like going from you know one 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 church, you know, like a Catholic church to a Baptist church. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy, and he's so good in this. He's wonderful in eating round. Absolutely. Great movie. And definitely watch it. He is in one of the greatest misfires of the 80s, which is a great movie, but it's also a very shitty movie. And that's Ari. Uh-oh. Go ahead. No, I just said it. it's Ari. He's good, and there's some really good parts in it. When you got the people that appreciate and love opera, classical music, people like uh, me, uh, Uncle Ken. Mm-hmm. Now, Ken Russell. Also, this particular segment that he's in, and we should make this point, mm-hmm. was the segment that Robert Altman directed of Aria, which is probably the second best segment in the movie. Um, it also cemented a friendship between Altman and Buck Henry that lasted until Altman passed away. And we'll get to that a little later. Okay. But this was the yeah. first time they worked yeah, together. Yeah, so cool. But the ones that don't work are so painful that make you want to just stick ice picks in your ears and eyes. Uh, true. I agree. Nicholas, not not rogue, uh, God damn it. Oh, yeah, the one that directed Barbarella. Yeah, Vadim. 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 Roger Uh, Vadim. His segment was shit on a stick. (laughs) True. Agreed. Then he played in Rude Awakening, which was a Cheech and Chong movie without Chong. 
But guess who they got to replace Tommy Chung in the movie? I don't know who. Eric fucking Roberts. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. And Julie Haggerty's in that too. Yeah, Julie Haggerty, Robert Carradine. It was supposed to be a Cheech and Chong movie with Cheech and Chong having to go hide out after the FBI was wanting them. So they come back after 20 years, and their two other friends are FBI, are become yuppies now. And it's about mm-hmm. how they try to move, move in on modern society. It's one of those that didn't look good on paper, and you're like, why the fuck did they make this in 1989? Yeah, seriously. Don't talk about out of date. Yeah. And yeah. Then he was in I something agree. called The Player, which, eh, no one knows about it. Who cares about it? Well, let's talk about that, okay? <laughs> because we have to. As I said, in Aria, he became good friends with Robert Altman. And so Robert Altman was planning his comeback because in the 80s Oldman was sort of like uh, uh, separated from Hollywood and, and he wanted to come back and he came up with this this satire on TV and so he went to Buck Henry and he gave him this idea we want to open the, the movie with this long shot and it's going to go by an office and I want you to be pitching a new movie. And so basically what happened was Buck Henry thought about for a second. He said, okay, I'm ready. Whenever you get it set, I'm ready. Walks on with no script and he does this, this, this pitch to Tim Robbins on The Graduate Part 2. And it is fucking hilarious. But it's so... Well, let me finish just a second. It's so dead on. Like, he's really being serious about it. So you don't know if, if he's really serious about it or if it's a joke. And that's what makes it absolutely brilliant. Okay, go ahead, Stephen. I'm done with that. What's funny is that's the exact pitch for a graduate sequel that Buck Henry got. They wanted him to write. Yes. <laughs> yep. And Alvin didn't it, know that. He just. Yeah, and after Buck Henry heard it, he thought for a second, just went, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and what the it's it's wonderful. Was, it was supposed to be. 20 years later, and that uh, the two lead characters who ran off at the end of the movie are yuppies now, bored yuppies, Mm -hmm. and Dustin Hoffman's character ends up screwing Mrs. Robinson again, and the end of the movie is Mrs. Robinson dying while they're having sex together and him having to explain that for his wife. Yep. Yeah, no. But I didn't like the player, but the next film he did with Robert Altman, I fucking love. 
Oh, good God. Yes, I agree. And that is shortcuts. Yeah, with Raymond Carver. And if you can, screw the Blu-ray. Try to find the DVD that has the book. And I have that in my collection. Yeah, that's the full experience, wouldn't you say, Carl? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just just take a look at this cast, okay? Annie McDowell, Bruce Davidson, Jack Lemmon, Zing, uh, Julianne Moore, Matthew Modine, Ann Archer, Fred Ward, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Chris Penn, uh, Lily Taylor, Robert Downey Jr., Madeline Stowe, Buck Henry. Good God. Tom Waits. Yeah, Tom Waits. Let's not forget Tom Waits. And for most of us guys, Julianne Moore is naughty bitch. And thank God she mm-hmm. went bottomless instead of topless. Yep. Even though first time yeah. we watched it, we all ignored what she was saying. Sorry, but it's true. Right, Carl? Mm-hmm. So so here's here's something that you should know, too. And it has to do with Buck Henry's scene. In the movie, even though the film is based on short stories by Raymond Carver, one scene is straight, taken straight out of David Osborne's novel Open Season from 74, a scene where Stuart, Fred Ward, and his two buddies, Gordon, Buck Henry, and Byrne, Huey Lewis, harass Doreen, Lily Tomlin, at the diner before they head out on their fishing trip, plays almost exactly like a short chapter in that novel. Now, Open Season, if you remember was made into a film in Canada. Remember? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting when I read that. And Shortcuts, really, it don't have a plot. It's a series of vignettes involving people in L.A. And some of them interact and some of them don't. So each of the stories may intersect at one point or another. Yeah, but most of them don't, and that's a good thing about it. Right. And some of the stories don't even end. They just stop. Right. Brilliant. And and, and he also has uncredited work on that as, as, a, uh, as a writer, too, in that. Okay. And next he was in one of the biggest disasters of the fucking 90s. Even Cowgirls Got the Blue Sucks. What the fuck were you thinking, Gus Van Zandt? You're a fucking idiot moving on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, don't you... Can you add anything to that? No, I, nor should we. Let's move on. Um, yeah. Grumpy old man. He was an actor in. Yeah, that movie is better than it has any rights to be. Well, come on, it's it's uh, it's uh, you know Mathal and and everybody and Burgess Meredith is in that. It's just wonderful. Yeah, but, the casting's great. You know, yeah, and, and of course, plot, uh, it's just your basic formula movie. But it it should have been called Grumpy Old Man. It says. A bunch of great co- old comic actors improvise for fucking 95 to 100 minutes 
just shut the fuck up and sit back and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And Burgess Meredith steals that movie. He's like, Pop, why ain't you, he said, if you think she's so hot, why ain't you chasing her? My dick don't work, you dumb son of a bitch. Why would I chase her? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. And next is, didn't he do some behind-the-scenes co-writing work on Network, Buck Henry? No, he did not. Hmm. No, I I don't see any any reference to that at all. Sorry. Well, in 1995, he was in one of the greatest satires of what it's like to be wanting to be famous on TV in America ever, and one of the best. Well, well, let's not say movies. he was also in. He wrote the damn screenplay to this. This was his baby. Yeah, he wrote this too. Yeah, and it was also a great anti. Racism, classism movie too. Oh, absolutely. He hit all soldiers on this man. Yeah, and that's to die for. To me, my favorite joke, besides the Bane one, which we'll talk about, of course, is that all through the movie, because uh, the lead Matt, Matt Dillon's character family is Italian. All through the movie, they talk about how they're mafia connected because they're Italian. Right. Which leads to one of the greatest lines ever. You know who he is? Da, da, da. Yeah, he's Italian. You know what that means? He's connected to the fucking mafia. That means one fucking phone call, and he will get a hold of people. Who will cut your off? Yeah. Your little fucking hairless balls. I forget. <laughs> Off and fucking make you wear my earring. And you know what I'm going to do when that happens? I'm going to fucking laugh, you little piss ant. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great film. I need to watch it again. I haven't seen it in, in 20 years. It, it's really and a good film. Room, and the punchline is, is that at the end of the film, the father is Mafia Connected, and he does make a phone call. <laughs> Which leads to one of the... And, of course, the hitman is, is a real surprise, too. Let's not yeah, give him who Canadian. it is. Yeah. But seriously. It, yeah, it, it's great. Everyone is great in this movie. I haven't seen the real blonde. I'm losing you... Uh, can we uh, you just want to pass on 1999's uh, disaster no I, I won't uh, say this. it's horrible no I'll just say it's horrible which is a shame Yeah. Uh, uh, because I really uh, thought this was going to be a great movie and we're talking about Vectors the Champions uh, uh, an Alan Rudolph fan, uh, film uh, based on the novel by uh, Kurt Vonnegut and I thought this was going to be great, and it was awful. And we'll just leave it at that, okay? The rest of Serendipity, The Last Shot, Bandera Streetcar, Kiss, Kiss, Finger Bang. Yeah. Okay, again, you're, you're in a... Okay, 
you're you're in a tunnel. I can hardly hear you now. Well, I was just basically skipping over the shitty one. No, you know what? Let's not no, let's not skip over town and country. Because A, no, I, he wrote I it. didn't mention that one. We're about to get into that. That was one of the biggest oh, disasters. Oh, okay, cool. Why, after the shit that Beatty gave him on Heaven Can Wait, did he work with him again on Town and Country? Well, you know what? They 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 had respect for each other, and and he, and um, Beatty really liked the screenplay, and the screenplay is really good. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, the director they chose, I don't think, really knew what to do with it. But but uh, and of course, Buck Henry came in and and redid the uh, original screenplay by Michael Laughlin. But man, I like this movie a lot. I think it's very very uh, underrated. And it's another you know uh, uh, another real. Uh, ticket uh, at, at the rich and famous and architects and all that sort of stuff. It's it's just an, an, a a wonderful little film. Uh, well, you know, I I think it's a, I think yeah. it's underrated. Yeah, but now. There's a lot of this TV stuff we passed over, like Tales from the Crypt. He's great in that. I I forgot. I can't find the clip I had for that, which just look up Tales from the Crypt, Buck Henry sings, and you'll get to see one of his greatest fucking hilarious moments ever. Where he sings about, where he sings as a mortician about how he loves cutting up a girl. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful. When I eviscerated her, cutting off her ribs and taking out her intestines. <laughs> now, now one of the best after... things he did, I was just going to say that, that our uh, audience would know that he was uh, Liz Lemon's father on 30 Rock. Yeah, and he was in Falcon yeah. Crest, Murphy Brown, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, Harris. Mm-hmm. He was the producer on Harrison Bergeron, that that great adaption from hey, 95. Yeah, absolutely. Great. He was you a know, contributor he, on The Daily Show. He also helped Show. out on the script on that, too. Go ahead, Steve. 30 Rock, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And yes, I think his character's name was Roy Morton. <laughs> he also played Betty White's girlfriend or boyfriend in Hot in Cleveland. Yeah. But there's two are leaving out. One that I'm shocked at Crick that uh Carl forgot, and that would be one of the very first meanest one of the meaner and nastier political sh- Daily show. If there wasn't for that, was the week that was. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, it's hard to find, um, and let's not forget that the, that was the week that was also uh, featured a number of songs. One of which Buck Henry actually sang on that by Tom Lehrer. 
and and uh, I think that was Werner von Braun. I think he wrote for that. But yeah, yeah, very very uh, uh, good stuff. And he wrote it. He uh, he wrote three episodes of that. So. Yeah, and in 1984, which is how we're really going to close this out, is the news show. I mean, why is this not available for people to see? I mean, this is basically the predecessor of the SCTV show. It's got Buck Henry in it for nine episodes, but also has John Can- Candy, jo- uh, the, uh, Dave Thomas, Lorraine Newman. And I've got a great yeah. skip from it, which we're going to play to close out this part of the show, which would be the Twilight Zone. But, yeah, it's hard for a comic writer to really transition from as many eras as he did. But he did it seamlessly. Absolutely. Why do you think that he was able to do it so easily? Well, for some... uh like I said, Mel Brooks, because Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula Dead and Loving It were, and Spaceballs, the TV show, were not funny. Not fucking funny at all. No. I, I think part of it is because he, it's what, what when I was talking about comedy earlier and, and, and what he said about Get Smart, and being hip and understanding the changes in comedy over the years. I think he had that innate sense in him that he could reinvent himself to a newer audience uh, and still be dangerous. And certainly that's very true to die for. You know, oh, God, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was so anyway, what, what, what do you have the new show? Because a... I'll, I'll say something. I don't know this show at all. I never even heard of it. I've heard of it, but that's because I'm an SCTV fan. It's basically considered a proto version of it because a lot of the actors on it were on SCTV, which, fuck you, in the mid-80s, even with Eddie Murphy, SCTV was better than fucking Saturday Night Live. Oh, easily. I agree. The interesting thing is this was developed by Lauren Michaels. Producer on this is Lauren Michaels and creator. Yeah. yeah. But who else would you know that would do a 90-minute show that was a takeoff of the Brain Eaters? SCTV! (laughs) Uh, That's very true. And how many other shows do you know that would do a recurring character that was a love note to uh, Chili Billy? SCTV, Joe Flaherty, Uncle Floyd. Yeah. And we'll be back after this. And warning, after this, we're going to get real music nerdy. Aren't we, Carl? Yes, we are. And not on the way you think, more deeper than that. So here we go with this clip from the new show. Hi, I'm Chris Serling. 
My dad, Rod Serling, created the Mortal series, The Twilight Zone. Now that I've turned 21, I've inherited my dad's estate, the exclusive rights to the old series, and the name, The Twilight Zone. When my dad wrote The Twilight Zone, people had different viewing habits, longer attention spans. When you go back and examine some of those old shows, you'll discover the ideas, well, could actually be expressed in about 30 seconds. That's why tonight, I'm so proud to present three Twilight Zonettes. Gosh, honey, I was really worried when those aliens abducted us and took us to this planet. I thought for sure something terrible was going to happen, but look at this place. This is much nicer than our house on Earth. Yes, the lights work, there's a record player, and look, a full liquor cabinet. Well, I guess there's no sense beating our heads against the wall. We might as well sit back and relax. All right, I'll open the curtain. All right. to that place between time and space, the Twilight Zonette. Who are you? I'm you, you nitwit. Who do you think? But how, Cena, are you crazy? Would you shut up and let me get some sleep? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Listen, I want you to steal some money from that bank where you work. But I can't do that. It would be dishonest. Oh, don't be such a weakling. You make me sick. But why haven't you ever spoken to me before? Because I didn't feel like it. I feel like it now, okay? Okay. Okay. imagining herself in the mirror or she really thought or what? I don't know. Well, anyway, that's what happens sometimes when you watch the Twilight Zonettes. <laughs> but if that one didn't grab you, I'm, I'm sure uh, the next one will because I rewrote it myself. But here's another real good Twilight Zonette. Now that you've given me your soul, what is your wish? Oh, evil one, I, I wish to rule a country. Yeah, that's it. I want to be the ruler of the most powerful country in the world. Ruler of a country? The most powerful country in the world? <laughs> Very well. Mr. President, the rescue mission in Iran has failed. Your brother, Billy, has been admitted to a rehabilitation center. Oh, no. I turned into Jimmy Carter. Oh, no! Oh, no! And it must be worse, too, to come. Let me see. I'm in a zoo! Oh, no! 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 Oh, Anyway, that's not good enough for anyone in one day. Oh, boy, I don't want to overload you with too many ideas. Until next time, this is Chris Serling saying, if you see something weird or strange, it's probably a Twilight Zonette.
Jack, what do you think of that, Carl? That was pretty good. That was pretty good. <laughs> and, and sadly, you knew what episode he was referencing, too, didn't you? <laughs> well, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, uh, and again, Buck Henry, uh, just to finish up, um, there's not many like him, and we're going to miss him without a doubt. So God bless him, and and thank the Lord he was here for a number of years. Yeah. Since Carl's eating a snack, we'll be back in a second. Damn it, Carl. Sorry. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I tinkled. That was the gong. Not only from Dawn of the Dead, but you probably heard that all over the place. Robot Chicken used that at the end of the their show. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead used it. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear that a lot. Um yeah. But it's mainly uh, connected to George Romero, to uh, yeah. Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Well, just Dawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was written by Herbert Chappelle, who sadly died last night. He was a British filmmaker, conductor, and composer. Best known for his... Uh, Stephen, I can hardly hear you. Uh, Herbert Chappelle was a British conductor best known for his television score. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to read off the Wikipedia, so thank you to whoever wrote it. Chappelle's many television scores included The Shadow of the Tower, Clouds of Witness, Murder Must Advertise, and The Palisers. And in loving memory, he also provided the theme to the VV television show Paddington and Songs of Praise. This song, The Gonk, appeared in the 1978 film Dawn of the Dead and again, Shaun of the Dead. His children's work, The Daniel Jazz, was lyrics by Vic Michelle Lindsay, was much used in school and was recorded in 1974 by the Sutherland Boy Choir. You know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that. Daniel Jazz? Okay. Mm-hmm. It is a short vocal tribute suitable. Well, here, you take it. Tell us about the Daniel Jazz, Carl. I don't know too much about it, to be honest, Stephen. I know of it, and I've heard it, but that's all I can tell you, and it's been a long while. Well, it says a short work suitable for performance by school children. 
consisting of songs about people and events from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which covers the period when the Jews were deported and exited to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. It was pub- mm-hmm. published by Novello in 1963. Right. He, he was an America, English composer, and he did a lot uh, yeah. for children's choir and things like that. That's where I know him from. Yeah. Well, by the time Romero got the hold of the gong, it was library music. And explain to our audience what library music is. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, if you do a, uh, a non-budget film and you need music, you can go to these libraries, which basically uh, take a small fee, a much less fee than than what you would pay a a, a real um, you know uh, copyright holder like like a, a music publisher, and you can use it for just a small fee, and and so they have all sorts of library, not only music but also sound effects too, and so. You know, the Wilhelm scream is part of this, too. Um, So you can use it for anything. It's like public domain. It's it's public domain. Anyone can use it. And if you're a public, if you're a public, uh, uh, a composer, and you write one song that's a big hit, let's say Carl wrote one classical tune that was a big hit, and he makes maybe... A hundred dollars a year off of it from royalty rights, but then mm-hmm. he composes forty library music things and makes ten cents a pop of every time they're used. Mm-hmm. He has a chance of making more money off of those forty library tracks than. And believe me, hit. he did. He he made a lot of money from from the Gronk because it's used all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and the gonk has become a Pittsburgh staple. Mm-hmm. You will hear it before the hockey team comes out. Absolutely, um, Penguins have been using it for years and years and years. And Since the mid '80s, I think. Yeah. And I can't think of a more perfect song for the end of Dawn of the Dead because after that last intense 20 minutes, you're just sitting there in shock. Mm-hmm. And then you get something like the gonk that really does <sighs> allow you to decompress in a way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. So thank you for all your music to him. And now we're on to, well, I'm going to let Carl intro this because I like the story about what his God said about this guy. So I teach uh, kids uh, here in New York City uh, at a little private conservatory. I teach them. Um, music theory, and then at the end we do some music appreciation. And this week, of course, Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, passed away. And so I was preparing something to say to them, and I ran across this interview 
um, with Stuart Copeland. Now, Stuart Copeland, as as many of you have listened uh, both to me on DLN and, and here uh, with Stephen, I am a huge Stuart Copeland fan. And what Stuart Copeland said about Neil Peart was very simple. He says, Neil Peart is the most uh, copied by air drummers in the history of music. He said, you look at anyone who air drums, and they're air drumming one of two things, and they're both by Neil Peart. Either either um, Tom Sawyer or, or uh, YYZ. And, and he said, the man's precision, everything that he did was just unbelievable. And he said, uh, uh, though he patterned himself a lot after his, after his hero, which was Keith Moon, he was so much more precise. And, and not only that, let's not forget that he also was the lyricist for the band. And, and so many of the songs are, are, are all his lyrics. And so the man is multi-talented, by night, great drummer. Night. And, and so that's what, what uh, um, Stuart Copeland of the police said about Neil Peart. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Fly by Night, Limelight, Tom Sawyer, he wrote. Yeah. Rush is one of those bands, when they were at their peak, they weren't liked as much over here as they was. I mean, everybody and their mother in 1980 had moving pictures. And every southern tough guy you would see going around to Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. Without really listening to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and plus well, the wrestler while Harry we're, ta- while we're talking about Neil Peart. Okay. okay, you go and then i got to say something. Go ahead, Steve. In the modern-day warrior, Carrie Day Lon Eric, well, of course, yeah, that was his theme, uh, Tom Sawyer. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a bat. I mean, even with the drum solo, the guitars, just everything about that, just boom, ba, boom, ba, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, the precision and, and, and the timing. One thing I wanted to say was this particular segment, uh, I'm dedicating to an old friend of mine who I worked with at Music and Arts. His name is Steve Hesselbacher. Steve Hesselbacher absolutely uh, worshipped at the altar of Rush. Now, we would make comments, and I would make comments, and I'm not a big Rush fan, uh, you know, a little too artsy for me. But nonetheless, you know, there's no question about the talent involved. And, and, and Steve... Actually, I, I talked to him after I posted on, on, on Facebook, and, and he was just broken up, you know. And, and uh, of course, Neil had been fighting um, um, brain cancer for three years, and many people didn't even know that. So this came as yeah. a real surprise to a lot of people. Uh, well, and and so, again, I just want to uh, dedicate this to Steve Hesselbacher. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that just makes my head hurt. I'm a real Rush fan. I love them all the time. And how come you didn't know they fucking retired? Because Neil Peart had fucking brain cancer three fucking years ago. I don't know. They didn't really push that. 
They didn't push that. Uh, well, even yes, Steve said that he knew he was tour. sick. But they, uh-huh. Yeah, they weren't touring anymore, and they'd broken up. And the official uh, word is that Neil Peart wanted to spend time with his family. But everyone knew, yeah. at least in the band, it was because Neil Peart had brain cancer. Um, and, yeah, he wanted to spend time with his family because he was going to die sooner or later. Yeah. And plus, how many times, honestly, have you heard that when a band breaks up and then uh, three or four me- years later, reunion tour time? Mm-hmm. But that's my oh, yeah. generation. Your ge- your generation and some of mine were road dogs. Right. The worst thing you can do to a road dog is take him off the road. <laughs> mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, they'll sit around going crazy. And back in our day, yeah, this is a back in our day shit. This is where I Mm. get. Back in our days, we had full bands. If you 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 had bands like, uh, bassist, like, okay, who's the lead singer of the Kinks? Carl. Say that again. Who's the lead singer of the Kings? Oh, Ray Davies. Who's the guitarist? Dave Davies. Who's the bassist? Um, depending on on which one you're talking about, but at the the original bassist was Pete Quape. Who was the drummer? Um. Oh, oh, good Lord, Carl. Um, <laughs> Mick Avery. Mick Avery. Yeah. And the point is, is that back then, if you loved the band, you knew every freaking one in it. Mm-hmm. Like the Beatles, Ringo Starr, Led Zeppelin, Bonzo Bonham. Yep. John Bonham. The Who. Yeah, John Bonham. The Who. Mm-hmm. Moon the Loon. Mm-hmm. John Ed Whistle. Yeah, that's the basis. We knew every one of those guys. Why? Mm-hmm. Because every one of them had an important part. You didn't have these fucking pussy-ass albums where they would drown out a certain fucking And when True. you listen to Tom Sawyer at the end of this show, which I'll be playing at the end, you will hear the drum solo up front, the bass up front. You're just going to hear a band happened? doing what they do well. And yeah. there's no question that Tom Sawyer is one of their best cuts. That- yeah, that auto-tune shit, where the lead singer become more important than the band. Mm-hmm. Like, even with Led nope. Zeppelin, would you consider, even with Led Zeppelin back then, was Robert Plant really the most important part and most pushed part of that band? No. No. They all were important. They all played their part. 
Yeah. And yeah, I mean, really, Carl's more of a drummer guy than I am. What is it about drummers that you love so much, man? It's a sense that the rhythm drives the piece. And it's not just the simple rhythm that pa um pa or whatever you you want to do. It's the fills. It's everything adds to texture with drummers. Whether it's it's something that's you know R and B or or it's prog rock or it's jazz or even if it's classical, it's it's that sense of rhythm and 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 structure that drives a piece to a logical conclusion that's why i love drummers i'm very much a pit band person where where it's the drummer the bass and the pianist you know are the basis and this foundation without the drummer you don't have a foundation and you don't have the rhythm and you don't have the impetus for the song to move that's why i love drummers yeah, and it's like if you look at Stevie Wonder or uh, Dwayne Allman playing on stage, playing the keyboards and the piano, they could play mm-hmm. two pianos at once and not lose the freaking rhythm. Mm-hmm. Same with guys like Neil Peart. He had like uh, at his be- at his biggest, he had like a twenty-one piece drum kit. Yeah, take a look at the drum set and the uh, official video of Tom Sawyer. It's huge. Yeah, real, but not like nowadays where they... And Tom Sawyer was recorded with a live sound, not with the studio sound. Yes, they did sweeten it back then, but not as overkill as they do with it nowadays in Auto Tunes. True. And with most bands, your guy Frank Zappa most definitely. You could hear a song on the on his album like, let's see, uh Peaches and Regatta. Great fucking song on the album. But once you heard it live, damn. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, of course, live, you know, you have different uh, arrangements and so on and so forth. Uh, you have more room to play and do improvisation and solos and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it's a lot Do they want to play it faster? Do they want to play mm-hmm. it slower? Is the guitarist feeling bad that night so the bassist and the drummer have to do more fills to uh, make the song work? Exactly. Very true. And when we went to concerts back then, we would be disappointed if the drummer would not fucking play a drum solo. Mm -hmm. And we loved it. Yep. Yep. I I love going to live concerts. I don't get a chance to do it anymore, but but I really love going to live concerts. 
That's because most of the concerts we'd see cost too goddamn much nowadays. Oh, hell yeah. Right, sir. I wanted to see Leonard Cohen while he was alive, but I didn't want to see it to pay like 80 to $100. No. Not at all. I grew up in the era where I'm like, my sister, when Kiss went to town in 19, came into town in 1980, I'm like, you're stupid paying fucking $10 to go see a concert. You're paying too much. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Yeah, I want to smack myself now for saying something that dumb. Yeah, yeah really. I agree. Imagine seeing an A-level band, be it the Kinks, anyone. Nowadays, and then say, well, tickets are $10. Oh, yeah. <laughs> be dancing in the street. True. But yeah, and let's be honest. When, when Rush was at their biggest, besides moving pictures before we get panned off, they weren't that popular over here. They had their hardcore fans, but they were like a drop, pitch drop in the bucket. Yep. And now you got all these wannabe. Ain't it funny how many real Rush fans are popping up since Neil Peart's death? That's true. And you never see any I've of known... these uh, mofos pop, put up a song of theirs before he died. Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. To me, I judge a fan on how deep the song they post or say is one of their favorites is. It's like, what's your favorite Queen song? Song off of Greatest Hits 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Queen song? Obscure song off the album that only like five or ten people know because the album wasn't that popular. All right, you're my kind of dude. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Like, what's your favorite uh, album track song of Frank Zappa's? Oh, good God. That's such a hard question. Um, there's so many. Um Good Lord. Um, one I love, I, I have to say a couple. One would be, uh, on the orchestral sense uh, side of it, it would be Bogus Pomp. Um, on um, on the popular end, I always loved Pajama People. Love that tune. And I love The Dangerous Kitchen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing stuff that isn't as well known. Yeah. Oh, and Evelyn, a modified dog. I have to do that one, too. Okay, never mind. I'm done. <laughs> like, for me, I'm not as hardcore as you are, and I'll admit it. But the one I like that not too many people really talk about because of how long it is, is the Illinois, is the Illinois Enema Bandit. And that will be the live oh, that's a wonderful on one. Lather. Mm-hmm. The one with the Don Pardo intro. Mm -hmm. Take it away, Don! Yep. 
Yeah. I don't know why it seems like when the bands I love, you get to see a really doodle like. Uh, if you ever heard Queen do Brighton Rock Live? No, I never that's did. It's like a 10, 15 minute song. It like has like a ten five minute uh, a piano solo, then it transitions into a guitar solo, then to a drum solo, then to a bass solo, then back to the fucking song. Nice. And it doesn't get, and it doesn't get Grateful Dadish. In other words, it's not noodling. Yeah, it's not. Well, I prefer. Uh, what Frank Zappa calls it better. Okay. Guitar wanking. Yep. It definitely is not guitar wanking. I mean, no one told the Grateful Dead fans, so I could never understand. I never could understand and phantom 40-minute jams on Dark Star. Agreed. And Rush really started out as a prog rock band with Yes and all them, but then they decided, we want to rock. Mm-hmm. Then you got well, stuff they, they, like they, uh, Tom they Sawyer. merged very well the both both tendencies. You know, the yeah. prog rock tendencies and the rock and roll, straight rock and roll tendencies. But they didn't cross that line into pretentiousness like... Uh, yeah. Early era Genesis with uh, what's his name, Peter Gabriel. Peter era. Gabriel, who I love, by the way. Don't don't be yeah. messing with Peter Gabriel. Yeah, but I'm talking Peter Gabriel era Genesis. I I'm I'm exactly talking about that. I love the lamb knives down on Broad. <laughs> I love Fox Fox. Love that era. Yeah, but if you ask Peter Gabriel, even he would say that era is crap. No, he doesn't. He doesn't think it's his best work. I'll give you that. Yeah. But not, he don't like much of his work, period. So. No, he doesn't. But yeah, I mean, in the seventies and eighties, we had bands you could go see live. Even the even the pop bands like Motley Crue and stuff like that. They would do their goddamnedest to make sure that you got the best live show they could freaking give you. Absolutely. All this is just a short way of saying we're growing old. We miss the good old days. We miss music. We miss real music. Real cost. Real groupies. Because even if they wouldn't pluck us, they'd show their tits to the band members, and we would be grateful to them for that. That's the band members. Mm-hmm. As soon as the guitar solicitor would go, show us your tits, we'd be like, yes, we get to see tits. <laughs> that had to be one of my saddest moments of my life, feeling bad for somebody. It was the Kiss reunion concert. Okay. And it was the first time that the original band played together, and Paul Stanley was yelling at the front row, come on, ladies, show us your tits. And none of them did. Aww. Yeah, I was like, oh, god damn. 
<laughs> you know, yep. hearing about the I'm old moments and witnessing one of them live is not a pretty <laughs> True. You have a point there. You have a point. But, yeah, I mean, when did you know that uh, Zappa had cancer? Uh, I I knew about a year. It was a little more than a year that you knew he was sick. They didn't come out and say it was cancer or what type of cancer. Not until much later. Uh, but yeah, I knew about a year. Yeah, I mean. Just because you're a celebrity, why should you have to tell somebody that you're dying of cancer? Why can't you let someone die in peace, for God's sake? Absolutely. I mean, I'm looking Absolutely. here at my pop figures. Uh, Prince, he died of a drug overdose. He didn't have any hips, and he needed the surgery. But because of his uh, religious monetation, you didn't get the blood transfer. Uh, Hans Gruber, uh, what's his name? Alan Rickman had cancer. Mm-hmm. Jim Henson, yep. uh, he came out with it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, Fredo Corleone, he didn't, nobody knew he had cancer until he was dead, did they, Gazelle? Nope, they didn't. Nope. But yeah, there's a difference between dying with dignity and dying in public. Very true. Very true. But yeah, Neil Peart is one of the was one of the greatest freaking drummers that ever was. And isn't it great that we live in a generation where we don't have to fight about who is the greatest drummer of all, of all time because everyone that we Your love stuff. has their points that we're like. Yes, they are. Yeah, that's, that's it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, we'll be on tomorrow night because the Oscars are nominated tomorrow. So get ready for the usual bits, and we'll probably be pissing on the. What's the chances of uh, what's the the betting pool says it's like a hundred to zero that we're going to be pissing on the documentary categories. We think that's a sure thing. Oh, I think it's. I think that's true. Every fucking year we've done this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, the biggest question for me is: Is Parasite going to get get it for uh, the nod for best foreign film or best film? It could be both, easily. No, they never do let them get both. Because remember, well, Roma got best well, film, not best foreign film, and it was a Spanish-made production. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. We'll see. That's a good question. My 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 interest is in will the Lighthouse get any acting awards nominations? Probably I don't know not. it hasn't gotten any so far, which is bullshit. Because yeah. just even looking at the clips I got, William Defoe just tears it up. But this is a hard year to pick a best actor and best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. This year has been packed. Yeah. 
And, of course, we're hoping that Eddie Murphy gets a nomination at the very least. Yeah. And I'm hoping and that like all the people Knight who say... nomination for that, too. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I'll see you bitches later. Uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson called me. You know Fred the Hammer Williamson, don't you? He's a real mm-hmm. star. Yep. <laughs> and knowing that he's going off to make Boss Nigger. <laughs> oh, Boss, yep. sorry. And later this week, we are going to be recording. We do have a winner already lined up, but we're not going to say it for the first episode of The Sleeve Pit. Yes, we do have a winner, and this was a landslide I wasn't expecting. What about you, Carl? No, I wasn't expecting it either, to be honest. But you're very glad. No, I'm pleased as shit, yeah. And next Sunday, I don't know what I got in store. Probably, I don't know. We'll see. I like working off the seat of my pants because guess what episode this is, Carl? Episode four hundred and forty six. Episode four hundred and forty six. Good God. So in four episodes we're gonna be four hundred and fifty. Good God. Good Lord. And the way you go, you'll get into five hundred by like March or April, the way the way you yeah. put out stuff. Yeah. What do you have in store for this week? Actually, nothing. Nothing set in stone. We will have a show. Adam will have a show on on um, Friday. Doc will have a show next Sunday. Um, and then I come come in the week after Friday. But also, we may be doing some special ones, too. Brock and I are talking yeah. about that, but we don't have anything set in, in, in stone at this point. And speaking of the Carney scumbag single fat, he's doing his worst movies of the year show with, who's gonna be, who was his backup tonight? I don't know. Probably Donna as usual. I don't like him. Well, well, he never will like him. Let me finish. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I thought he was doing that. But no, anyone no, no. who can he get Donna to bring. Work. Let me finish. Anyone who can get Donna to regularly do shows, pretty goddamn impressive. <laughs> no, you better go. I didn't give him credit for that, absolutely. Yeah. And good night. And hopefully we don't have to do another Oh, God, we almost forgot. What's one of my favorite noirs of, uh, we're going to do this real quick. Cutter's Way was all, is one of my favorite noirs that none of you guys have ever seen. And who directed that, Carl? That would be Ivan Passer. And before and I, that, he was he was in what's considered one of the great 
Polish, or is it Czechoslovakian New Wave films of the 60s? Czechoslovakian. And that would be The Fireman's Ball, the first film of Milos Forman. Right, but but no, okay, so let's make this clear. They were friends, and they were both directors. So, but Ivan Passer did not do that particular film. That was Foreman. So Passer directed yeah, Cutter it. and Bone, which is one of your on. favorite films. Okay. Yeah, I said worked on, son. Okay, hold he, on. He uh, wrote it. Uh, yeah, that, actually, you are right, okay. But uh, his, his the movie that he did in, in uh, Czechoslovakia was Intimate Lightning, Lighting, which is a really good film. Uh, but he moved to to uh, uh, Hollywood, and uh, his first film was Born to Win, which is an incredible film with uh, George Siegel uh, about drug addiction, and and very very good film. Um, he's known, of course, for for Cutter's Way. Um, another film he did was um, Haunted Summer, which is. Uh, 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 his take on the same material as Gothic, as the Ken Russell. Uh, he did a film, a uh, 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 caper comedy called Silver Bears with uh, Michael Caine, but best best known particularly uh, for Cutter's Way, uh, Intimate Lightning, and Born to Win are 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 the big ones that he did. Okay, so well, there you go. That's that's Ivan Passer. And don't forget, he did one of the better quirky uh, sci-fi films of the 80s, Creator. Yes, that's true. I love that movie, that's the one, even though it's weird. Yeah, it is. It is. That's the one with um, Peter O'Toole, right? Yeah, trying to uh, recreate, trying to rebirth his dead wife. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an odd one. None of his films are, yeah, none of his films were normal. Cutter and Bone isn't even your normal noir. It doesn't even go to places where normal noirs does. No. <clears throat> Another one that that I I forgot to mention, which I don't think is is uh, truly successful, but it is odd. And basically, mm-hmm. it's uh, law and disorder. Do you know this? Uh, two cops no. uh, have had enough in New York City. They, along with other disgruntled people, decide to take the things in their own hand, only realize too late that they're in over their head. It's Ernest Borgnine and Carol O'Connor. And yeah. and um, it's it's an odd little film. Also with yeah, the Karen Black has a small cops, role They're not cops. They're normal guys who one of them buys a cop car off of a police auction. And they start to play cop until shit gets serious. Right, exactly. Good, good, In a way, good it's little... a fuck you to, yeah. The problem is, is that the movie should have really come out right after the whole Bernie Getz thing happened, but it came out about six years or something before that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like six or seven years yeah. before that. Absolutely. It was released in 1975. 
It's one of Carol O'Connor's few lead roles in a film. Yeah. And the bitch, it was our first episode of the year, and we had started with a R.I.P. episode. Damned. Yeah. 2020 really, seems really, like it ain't going to play. Kind of sucked. Kind of sucked. But good night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night. And here it is, one of the greatest drum solos, just drum performances, period, in a song. Tom Sawyer. Say good night, Carl. Good night. Thank you much for having me on, Stephen. You too.
game over, man. It's game over. Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.